Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Monday, July 11th, and welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am Matthew Zachary, a 15-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And I am Lisa Bernhardt, 16-year young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living because the Stupid Cancer Show is here to change the world, one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show is all about the future of nonprofits with Randall C. Moss, not to be confused with football player Randy Moss. Randall C. Moss is the social media marketing manager for Midwest Tobacco, and he'll make fun of me if I mispronounce that. The author of The Future of Nonprofits, Innovate and Thrive in the Digital Age. And we'll be joined by David O. Renz, Ph.D., Dr. David Renz. He is the Beth K. Smith, Missouri Chair in Nonprofit Leadership and the Director of the Midwest Center of Nonprofit Leadership and the Chair of its Department of Public Affairs. And starting off in our Survivor Spotlight, Angela Van Turen. She's a young adult survivor of small cell carcinoma of the cervix. Matthew. As a reminder, this broadcast is a production of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. Online at stupidcancer.com, we help young adults fight cancer every day and to bring the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it belongs because it's not okay. Not okay. It's not okay. That's, hallelujah, brother. That 70,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer every year. Ah. So hello, my friends, and welcome back to yet another fun-filled and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show where we're mission. It's not a cure, and survivorship is all that matters. It's all that matters, Matthew. And a Stupid Cancer welcomes all of our first-time listeners on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes. Don't forget to download us on iTunes. It's free. It's easy. It comes automatically. Don't even have to think about it. As we broadcast all the way live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. And don't forget, folks, the Stupid Cancer Show has a live interactive chat feed during each broadcast. We invite you to join in the fun, connect with our friends, and ask questions of our guests. And officially welcoming back, as always, our friend, Mr. James Manning. Hello, James. Is your mic off? I think your mic is off. I'll have to do a little fiddling with his mic. Uh, Please hold. Yeah. That's right. The mic is uh, finicky. Shari, is your mic on? Yes, 
it is. It is? Are you sure? No, I don't... Are you, yeah, maybe yeah, it is. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe some tech problems tonight. Anyway, welcoming talking, Shari Hunter, a recent migrant. Can I use that word? From yeah, the D.C. Okay. Metro chapter to the I2I New York City Metro chapter. We are pleased to have her in studio. She uh, contacted us. Oh, there it is. I think it's on now. James? I'm here. There we go. Who says I'm not technologically capable, Matthew? Lisa, I am overwhelmingly satisfied with Come your... Come on! You are formally a member of the Geek Squad. Oh, excellent. You've been inculcated and inaugurated. Maybe not. Very you nice. You asked for it, Lisa. <laughs> yes, I know, exactly. you have. You have, you have. Um, all right, so, uh, hello. Hello. Happy post-4th of July. Did you have any special plans last weekend? Or after... Or this weekend? Or on Monday after we left and finished the show when you called in? Well... Uh, the special plans for July 4th, um, my fabulous partner, who you know, Gwendolyn Bounds. Wendy! Yes, was on Good Morning America with our dog, Dolly. Get out of town. Uh, the Monday, uh, no, the Tuesday morning after July 4th. So we couldn't that do That would be July 5th. That would be July 5th. That's right. Um, thank you. I know calendar. And 5th comes after 4th. So we couldn't really do a huge July 4th celebration. But she needed to be cogent. Yeah, and sober. And I actually, um, as you know, I've worked in television, but I've never worked as a dog handler in television wow. before. So, <laughs> did you join her on set? I joined. Well, the, the set was, you know, Good Morning America has. Um, they do a lot of segments outside. Is that Hoda, or is that like? Um... No, Hoda is NBC. Okay, okay. That's the second. That's the third and fourth hour of the Today Show. Matthew, get your morning show right. I don't right. know anything. Hello. Oh, is that the Matt Lauer thing? That's NBC also. Is that Al Roker? That's NBC. All, that's all the Today Show is what you're naming. Okay. So, Stop. So this was on Good Morning Stop. America. Is that Charlie Gibbons? <laughs> Charlie Gibson? He's 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 moved on. Okay. He's not on it anymore. And it's normally Robin Roberts and George Stephanopoulos. Robin Roberts, who is a breast cancer survivor. Yes, she is. Love Robin Roberts. Um, she wasn't on the sh- on the program that morning. Elizabeth Vargas. Oh. You may know her. I know, know her. her. Yes. Yeah. So she was hosting, and Wendy did a segment on pet safety based on an article that she wrote in the Wall Street Journal. And there are seatbelts like now. Like using a pet to protect you or protecting a pet? No, not as a pet shield. Okay. <laughs> now that's no. a story. Not like if you're in a terrorist situation. <laughs> and Quick, throw the, and, and throw like the dog. Bin, like Bin Laden, and he grabs his wife or something throw like that. Throw the dog. That. No. Um, yeah. So if you're riding a car, this is actually very serious. You want to protect your pets. Because if you get in an accident, they can get very inj- harmed and injured, or they can harm people in the car, like the driver, right. if they lunge forward. So there are seatbelts now. There are harnesses, and there are crates and there things are, that they make for dogs. Are there dog, dog car seats? Yes, there are dog car seats. Um, and or would there that are be a harnesses. car dog seat? Either one. It's about the branding. I know. Okay. Exactly. So um, our car, our Jeep, was parked outside of Good Morning America, and Dolly, um, now star of stage and screen, uh, was featured on Good Morning America, and she did. She was performed beautifully. She was in her harness. Then we unhooked her and called, and Wendy called for her, and she came out the back of the ramp that we had hooked up to the Jeep. And I was essentially the dog handler who took her after the segment was over. And it was fabulous. So both of them were on, and the segment was terrific, and Elizabeth Vargas host, and Wendy explained all the dog stuff, and Dolly performed brilliantly and was adorable. And best in show. Best in show. Very nice. Yes. But we tried to be not as neurotic as those pet mommies and daddies that are in that movie. Well, like the toddlers and tiaras for pets. Exactly. Right, okay. We, were, we tried to be a little bit more sane than that. But well, we didn't I, have much sleep because 
like I said, our, our Fourth of July festivities were curtailed because we had to go to bed by about 7 p.m. You had to clean up nice and make it look good the next right. morning. Right. right. Very nice. Right. Is that on, like, YouTube now? Can I watch that on, like, the todayshow.com or something? It's Good Morning America. What's with you with the Today Show? I want NBC to be a sponsor, okay? What about ABC? Is it too uh, shabby for you? Yeah. yeah they still yeah. have some money. Uh, we'd take ABC. Yeah. We'd even take CBS. We <laughs> That's really scraping the bottom of the barrel. No. We Dear joke. Les Moonves. We joke because we love. And we had John LaPook on from we the did. CBS Evening News. We love CBS. We love them all. And we right, take hey, all Good Morning America, home. not the Today Show. Good Morning America. Sure, you can look it up. You can go on uh, GMA.com and you can Elizabeth Google Vargas. It. Yes. Who was in for Gwen Robin Bounds. Robin yes. Robin Roberts? I don't yes. know. I don't know. Yeah, really? Robin Roberts. Okay. Yeah. If I had a my last name was Roberts, I would not name my daughter Robin. You don't have to. You don't have to worry about that because your last name's not Roberts. Yes, you, have, not. you don't have to lose any sleep over that. <laughs> that may be her married name. I mean, who knows? That's true. No, I don't think it is. No? Oh, well. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, moving right along. Well, we have. I wanted to talk about, um, just because it was a point of fact for the cultural ridiculousness of this country and this planet, today is, <laughs> I can't even say this with a straight face, today is International Day Against Stoning. And that may not be what you think it stands for, but stoning is actually a barbaric ritual where if someone commits a felony or a crime, you sort of cordon them off in the center of the town square and you throw rocks at them of a specific size, I read. The rocks can't be too big and too small. They have to conform to a specific guideline. And then you basically throw these stones at people and kill them until they're dead. You know, but I think that there are people who should be stoned, but not a lot of the people who actually are Not the Will and Nelson kind of way. Not in the Willie Nelson kind of way. Right. I mean, unfortunately, I think this happens to probably a lot of women who, in a lot of third world countries, get flogged and stoned for doing things like wearing the wrong dress in public, which, right. of course, is a horrific offense. Never mind all the people who are, too close who, to are, who are killing them. other people right. and blowing up things and causing wars and things right. like that. Um, but, uh, you know, remember the guy, remember the U.S. citizen, the kid who got caned in Singapore? That was like 15 years ago. Yes, well, we were both alive then. I believe I was. Yes. <laughs> but you remember that, right? Yes. That was a huge deal. Caning. He got caned for, I don't know, Rick, I can't remember what he did. He probably that like, was smoked a, in public or chewed was, gum or something. That was a huge chewed yeah. gum, right. Um, no, you can't. Stepped, you stepped can't. on one of the sidewalk cracks. Yes, and he got, yeah. I think that was what it was. Yeah. Singapore is like OCD with that stuff, though. You really can't like throw a cigarette butt in the street or throw gum on the street. You will really get arrested. Well, I'm all for that. That's littering. Right. You shouldn't do that. Right. Not sure you should be caned for it, but right. close. <laughs> close. All right, so we've gone... Uh, so anyway, there was that, and then... Um, we will talk about cancer, actually, for the people who are listening for the first time. Yeah. I mean, At some point in the show, we do bring we, that up. I, I, it is the stupid cancer show. Right. Not, not just the, the stupid show. Not the stupid Casey Anthony show <laughs> not, or something like that. Not, right. Anyway. Not, not just if, if you're thinking this is just the stupid show, Yes. Um, we will come around to... Well, yeah. let's let's get to our, uh, our Survivor Spotlight. I'm very excited to have her on the show. Um, am I reading this or you, Lisa? Why don't you go ahead? All right, and take I'll it. take it. I'll take it. Let's give Angela some really awesome lead-in music here. Bosses. Nice. Little young MC. Little young MC. Angela Van Truren is 31 years old and lives just outside Seattle, Washington. She is one and a half year survivor of. I'm not going to print it. Neuroendocrine small cell carcinoma of the cervix. Say that ten times fast with lots of syllables. 
Since her diagnosis, she has been working on finding women from all over the world who have had this rare cancer. And for the first time in the history of this cancer, there's a group of over 50 women who have connected. She is partnering with I2Y on the formation and the uh, genesis of the Seattle chapter. Super Cancer doesn't keep her from loving her fabulous life. She is the rock star that is Angela Van Truen. Please welcome to the show, Angie. Hi. May I call you Angie? You may. Just you, Matt. Just me. Okay, not me. I have to call you Angela. <laughs> yes. All right. I, I, you I'm can really... call me Angie just for today. I just think of that hor- horrible Gina Davis movie called Angie. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it was, a, it was a TV show. No, it was a movie, wasn't it? No, it was movie. a TV show. Was it? It was a factcheck.com. I know. Hang on. Yeah. Um, anyway, welcome to the show. We will cross-check my facts while we interview you. Inter- Angie TV series, okay. 1979 to 1980. No, it was a movie. Google the movie. Go to IMDb and Google Oh, Angie. I'm thinking of the one with Donna Pescow. You oh, no. who? Gina Davis. <laughs> oh, Gina Davis. I can't Sorry. believe we're arguing about this. I know. <laughs> Why don't we talk to Angela? Yes. Hello. She's our guest. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. I don't, th- I don't think I, I, I did that um, launch in music justice. No, no, you did. I don't think did. I can hold up to that. No, okay, you're going you're gonna to prove everyone right. There you go. Very nice. Good. All right, so you have to explain to us what the hell, I mean, we know <laughs> cervical cancer, but, like, there's a whole lot of these strange adjectives that precede it right now. Do we know cervical cancer? Yeah, we yes. do. Yeah, yes, we, we do. So talk us through how you were diagnosed to begin with, if you got misdiagnosed, if you were treated like crap, and then what the, <laughs> what the hell is neuroendocrine small cell carcinoma? God, Gesundheit and God bless you. Go ahead. It is. It's a mouthful for sure. Well, um, it did all start. It was about a six-week process before diagnosis. So they thought that it was um, the quote-unquote regular cervical cancer that you hear about that we all know very, very well about with the HPV and um, abnormal cells and all that fun stuff. Well, it turns out that um, neuroendocrine small cell carcinoma is, in fact, not related to HPV. So it's a cervical cancer that is makes up less than 1% of all cervical cancers, and it's actually not HPV-related. So it was a lot of fun testing and biopsies and procedures before they actually figured out what it is. And um, so, yeah, it's a, very, it's, a rare, it's a rare mutation of um, small cell of the lung that shows up in different areas of the body. Of the lung? Cells of the yeah. lung, you said? Mm-hmm. Small cell of the lung. Okay. That mutate that's mutated itself, sort of, and it shows up in different parts of the body. And so there's this small percentage, one percent, less than one percent of all cervical cancers is small cell. Mm-hmm. It just so. it just fuels my theory that it's just not about the part of your body anymore. How do you feel Absolutely. about that? Absolutely. Well, it just it just shows up anywhere. It can show up. It can show up in you know the cervix. It can show up in the lung. It can show up in the bladder. Um, it can show up in, in all sorts of areas. So, and, but they're treating it just as the same as lung cancer. They don't have a treatment protocol for it because they, because they, they, they bottleneck it into certain parts of the body. So, um, yeah. So how special did you feel to fall into that less than 1% category? <laughs> I'm, Congratulations. I'm, I'm, you are amazing. Thank you very, very much. Yes, You're welcome. I've decided I'm, I'm not liking the word fascinating anymore. Yeah. I'm done with the word. Your case is fascinating. Oh, yeah. Um, the the fascin- I, I, We want to be normal again. But <laughs> You're like, what you should say, thank you. Save that for the classroom, not for the actual yes. patient to hear yes, that word. Exactly. I, I'm completely with you. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Exactly. So they don't. So so what is the so so no chemotherapy or anything like that? Is surgery? Is. Tell us. Okay. Okay. So typically, the typical um, treatment for small cell is 
typically is surgery, chemo, and radiation. Um, I was actually extremely fortunate and just had um, a small surgery and um, chemo. Um, I went through um, cisplatin metoposide with my cocktail and um, finished treatment back in February of 2010. Now, were you were you sort of manhandled or misdiagnosed or treated like an old person? <laughs> you know, not. it just took a long time for them to figure out what was going on, and I think it's because they don't know anything about it. So, um, you know, my doctor, I think, was more scared than I was in the beginning. And uh, she had she had definitely that look of fear, but ultimately she, you know, it was really just because she didn't know anything about it because nobody does, uh, because they haven't put the time and energy in, in research, into researching it. Is this something that you had symptoms of, or did you just go in for a checkup and something came back that looked a little weird? I went in for a checkup, and so I was asymptomatic. We have some girls in our group that... Um, were showing symptoms, which is how they were diagnosed um, in later stages, and so I was um, I was asymptomatic. So you before did, they found it. So what happened? Because normally on the so something came back atypical on the on the Pap smear. Exactly. For me personally, some of our girls did not come back atypical Pap smears, and so for me personally, I did have one, but they found the small cell tumor separate from those cells. Okay. So yeah. The, Oh, but so so are you saying they, they were not connected or they were connected? They were not connected. You just happened to have an atyp- mm-hmm. atypical PAP that can sometimes happen but didn't really mean anything, but when exactly. they were sort of in there, whether they do like a follow-up biopsy and when they were in there they found this other tumor? Absolutely. Congratulations. Wow. So if I had never, exactly, so if I had waited the two years for in between physicals, um, right. Like they're suggesting now, they never would have found it in the time that they would. Amazing, that they that's true. They've mm-hmm. just changed that. It used to be that you would yeah. get. I've just found that out just going right. for a checkup myself. You get it every year, but now they're suggesting every two years for the Pap smear. Mm-hmm. Is that a good thing yep. or a bad thing? I'd like every two months personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd like a full body scan every like two a, months. Is there like exactly. a home Pap smear kit that we can invent? <laughs> yes. I'd like an X-ray machine in my house. Yes. Yeah. 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 No. Every year, I think I think women should definitely go every year. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what what was your job prior to getting diagnosed and did you get to return to that job with stability? My absolutely. I I've been extremely lucky um in comparison to a lot of things that I've heard. So I was in marketing for a property management company and I actually actually they were fantastic, um really supportive through the entire thing. And um I'm sitting at at my desk. I hope they're not listening right now, but no. <laughs> I'm sitting at my desk right now at the same job, so I've been extremely lucky and fortunate. That's great. Are there any coworkers mm-hmm. around you? Um, my door's shut, so I don't oh. think anybody can hear me. <laughs> did, did you have any trouble, like, telling people your story or, like, getting back to work or your coworkers? Did you have to tell, like, your HR department, or what was your experience with that? I did. You know, getting back to it at first, it, it was it was difficult because people expect you to just be 100% right away. Because yeah. um, it's awkward for them, and um, so it's it's hard to remind. You know, I've had I still to this day still have to te- remind myself that you know I'm still healing in a lot of ways, and so it's been an interesting process um, since coming back to work. Um, but they've been extremely supportive. So tell us about how you connected with all these women, what this is about, and how and 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 are you really? Um, I'm the person who's um, because I have a, a um, I'm a journalist. I always fact check everything, and yeah. while I can't imagine how except Angie the movie except well I fact checked it. I was thinking of Donna Pescal. See, that's how old I am. No, it's, I'm gonna I'll no find Angie's movie. We know it's okay. uh, James already handed me the iPhone. 
Um, okay. It was Gina Davis. That Moncherie, our guest, has has um, found out that it was Angie was the movie. Right, and but it was Gina Angie, Davis. And it was Gina Davis. Okay. But there was a TV series with Donna Pescow. All right, I don't want to discount that, <laughs> but I'm... But I'm sorry, we, that's right. I'm all when about you Gina said, Davis. When you said Gina Davis and movie, you were correct. We're doing Angela a grave disservice at this 1994, point. we are. That, okay. I'm, I'm learning a lot right now. Oh, my gosh, I'm sorry. The tagline <laughs> no. for the movie is, Angie's ready to face life's toughest challenges. But is the life ready for Angie? Has she had Ooh. friggin' cervical cancer? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, not just cervical cancer. Multisyllabic ridiculous Neuroendocrine neuro small cell carcinoma of the cervix. That started in your lungs. Yes. Yeah. And you're an on-smoker, right? <laughs> I, you know, I actually have to admit I was a smoker beforehand, before I was diagnosed. Have they, have they, have they said anything that connects the two, or they don't know? No, right? no yeah, they, they don't, don't know. know. Yeah. So let's go back to how you were the first ever person to connect 50 women with neuroendocrine small cell carcinoma of the cervix. Did you, well, like, carrier there... pigeons or something? <laughs> <laughs> we do. Sometimes I feel like we're carrier pigeons. Um, right. We have a phenomenal group of women that have um, been joined together. So actually there was a discussion board on um, one of the, the many cancer discussion boards where there was a, a couple women that had connected, and um, we have two of our two of our sisters. We call each other sisters. Two of our sisters that had started um, a website previously, and um, weren't they they were they were trying to find other women um, like themselves. And the three of us connected, and um, I started a Facebook page, a Facebook group page, and just started reaching out through the different discussion boards when we would find one person, and we would add that one person, and then we would just keep reaching out to these discussion boards, basically just saying, you're not alone, you're not alone, there's women, there's other women that can support you. So and, Facebook is really um, the glue that made it all happen. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. We've just been, we've just really, we've added um, three just this week, um, three women to our group that were just diagnosed, um, that are in the pro- in the earliest stages of diagnosis, no plan yet even for their treatment. But that's so, extraordinary. Um, are they from all over mm-hmm. the world? At, all over the world. We have one right now in Paris. We have one in Norway. We have some in Canada, One in a couple in Australia. Well, Canada doesn't count, so. Because <laughs> they're connected. We're yeah. connected. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't count anyway, but them. the fact that they're like, Oh, connected. we love them. No, I, love I bust them. on Canada. We had one come from Canada to OMG last year, so. We did. We did. That was awesome. And one from one of them from Norway. We met for the first time ever at OMG this year. So nine of us did. Wait. Wait. Norwegians get cancer? Yes. <laughs> they seem so yeah. healthy. Well, yeah, with their sobs and Ikeas. No, wait, that's, that's Sweden. <laughs> that's Sweden. <laughs> that is Sweden. Yeah. Norwegians are like, they're these outdoor, they're always like climbing mountains and doing it's things like that. Jordan Palooza. Yes. <laughs> Jordan Palooza. For sure. Or Bjorken therapy or something. <laughs> and Gefilte fish. No, Gefilte fish is... All right, you, you, now you did it, James. James is like... <laughs> you started the whole Jewish thing. Yeah, I did. They do eat something very similar, though. Angela is never coming back on the show. Oh, well. I want to come back. Okay. Yeah. Well, speaking of the OMG Summit, you um, you are looking forward to Vegas, I hear. I am extremely excited about Vegas, and I know our girls are already... Our, our sister group is is already gearing up for an even bigger presence this year at OMG. So yeah, we're very excited. We're very excited. And tell us how you initially found about out about I2Y and, and what's going on with the Seattle chapter. What to make them proud about tonight's show? Oh, gosh. Well, they are um, – I found out about I2Y from um, – I have a mutual friend. Um, I share a mutual friend with someone who's, who else is involved in the organization. And she introduced me to – 
um, you fabulous people. And um, so I've had the honor of really trying to help get the Seattle chapter off the ground. We've had um, a couple of great um, happy hour events. We've um, we've been present at a couple other young adult cancer um, events here in the area, and we've got another event coming up here in July, um, hoping to just get out to some of the walks this year and, and just get an I2I presence in the in the Pacific Northwest, which we're really excited about. It's a big deal. And you guys, uh, just to wrap up, we have uh, just maybe three or four minutes left, but yes. the thing I like about Seattle, and perhaps you can comment on this, is that all the hospitals actually seem to work together. Is that the case? They absolutely do, and I can, I mean, firsthand experience for my case, all of my, my doctor reached out to the university, to Fred Hutch, to Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. Um, I was treated at Swedish, and they all had doctors and physicians that um, consulted on my case. And so they really do reach out to each other. They're a really close-knit close network. And so I think um, cancer patients in the Pacific Northwest are, are really lucky um, That's to have such a great network. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Now, tonight's show is about nonprofits. If I may, uh, yeah. di- uh, if I may divulge and get your opinions on certain things, <laughs> um, how involved are you with, with charity? Oh, well, I'm just getting my... Um, my feet wet really with um, with our small cell group. We're we're starting a grassroots effort to try and raise money for small cell specific research, and so um, I'm learning a lot right now about um, what that looks like and and some of the challenges that come with it. And it's uh, it's a pretty interesting world. Is there like one guy in a small cave in Norway that funds small cell cervical research, or is it like a standardized thing somewhere? What is it? Is there a what? I'm sorry. Is, is there like a standardized, you know, best practices or, or any no. research models about this? Or is it, I'm serious, is like, where is the research for this? Is there one guy in a cave somewhere doing it? <laughs> There's basically one guy in a cave, and um, if I'm allowed to say, he's at um, he's at MD Anderson, and he's really well, part, that's not a partnered cave. with. That's like a. Well, no, he's he's right. he. You you think he was because he's all alone in the world. It feels like sometimes, <laughs> but he, this doctor, has um, partnered with us, and he is a signer on an account that we have there um and it's just our girls we're we're out there pounding the pavement um trying to raise money that will go into a small cell specific research fund if you call any of the major um cancer organizations nobody knows what small cell is and so you can't there's no treatment protocol there's no clinical trial that we can be involved in there's no um treatment specific research um for a small cell and so it's us and we just you know, our grassroots effort trying to raise money um, that's going into this specific account um, to try and get some sort of treatment protocol going. And uh, unlike many cancers, there is mm-hmm. no, like, actual prevention for this, correct? No, none at all. There's, They don't even know where it comes from, so it's it's hard for them to say, you know, here's what to do to prevent it or to to cure it or to lower your risks or, or anything. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to the larger question of, like, the message of the young adult world is, you know, we're going to get cancers that you can't really detect early, and how do you build and make the case and start the, the sort of the, um, I don't know, the social oomph, if you would, to, to just change the rules that it's not about, first of all, it's not about what part of your body got sick anymore. Mm-hmm. So we should cast asunder organizations that focus on one body part, perhaps, or, or, or perhaps diversify the fact that, you know, there is a need for that, but there is also a need for this. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, you know, it's all about prevention and risk mm-hmm. reduction, early detection is inapplicable in many Absolutely. cases. 
So what do you say to those people? And it's a really important conversation to start. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, of course, there's there's things to be said about just living a, a general healthy lifestyle, Um but and, and to do everything that you can just to, to make your body healthy to prepare itself should something happen. I agree um, with that. that. Was, yeah. yeah. That, sorry to interrupt, but that's no, correct. No, I mean, even because if something does happen, you want to be in the best shape possible. You right. may not be able exactly. to, you know, save off getting cancer or any other disease, but you certainly have better odds, hopefully, of just you know being able to tolerate the treatment better and mm-hmm. sort of live a healthier life going forward. But keep going. <laughs> and no, that's exactly what I was going to say because it just put, it puts up your 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 body's um, defenses, makes them just so much stronger to help fight off something that does come. Um, so I definitely believe in that even more so than ever. Um, but definitely, just say you know you just have to be prepared and and don't go into that. Um, I yell at all of my friends who are like, "Oh, I'm young. I haven't been to the doctor in three years." And you know, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, absolutely not. There's no you know, there's cancer and and illness doesn't have an age anymore. Nope. Mhm. Nope. Absolutely. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're all agreed on that. Yes. Well, I can't thank you enough for for coming on the show. I can't wait to see you in Vegas next year, if not beforehand. If you guys want to put together something insanely awesome in Seattle, I have been there in like three years. I'd love to come back out oh. there and, and meet you guys. I've in never person. been to Seattle. I don't think. All right, then we'll find Lisa out there. Yeah. You Great. guys are more than come on out. Yeah, we'll hang out. Fantastic. <laughs> we'll do can I be a sister? Awesome. Can I be a sister if I've had breast cancer? Totally, you can totally be a sister. Okay. Definitely. Is it neuroendocrine small cell carcinoma of the breast? <laughs> I have no idea. Just say Gesundheit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gesundheit. All right. Just in closing, I will say my favorite part of Seattle uh-huh. is not the fish market. It's not no? the Space Needle. It's not the fact they have these two crazy giant billion-dollar stadiums next to each other. It's that stupid troll under the bridge. <laughs> the Fremont Bridge. The Fremont, the Fremont, Fremont Bridge troll. troll. He's kind of creepy. It, yeah, it's and there's like a Volkswagen mm-hmm. bug wedged in there too. Mhm, absolutely. Right. That is my all-time <laughs> favorite skied out but awesome Seattle fact of the day. Troll. I don't know about the he's, troll. It's like a sand sculpture cool. of clay troll underneath of the Fremont Bridge. Mm-hmm. Google it. Google now, it. Yeah. Right Google this second. It. Well, you guys are kind of hippie-ish out there, so that sounds like uh, it's they are. Right? Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's good there's stuff. A, there's yeah. a big crew out here. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for calling in. Thanks for being on the show. Thank we'll you, be Angela. Angela Van Truren, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's hit up the news right here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Hit it, Matthew. During this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announced to our listeners a whole bunch of newsworthy programs, events, and services that we don't want you missing out on. They're all free, and they're all just for young adults with cancer. Things like conferences, happy hours, retreats, kayaking and mountain climbing trips, finance webinars, college scholarships, bar crawls, concerts, tweet-ups, support groups, and more. If you have something coming up that you'd like us to spread the word about during this part of the show, please send us an email to info at stupidcancer.com. That's info at stupidcancer.com. All you leave. Oh, yes. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.com, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Stay in the loop because something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. What do we got, Maddie? We have tomorrow night a Stupid Cancer Happy Hour in uh, Cary, North Carolina, the end of the triangle. I in North Carolina. Come on, Cary. Wednesday the 13th of this week, Nashville. Wednesday the 13th of this week, D.C. Metro. We got some D.C. Metro folks in the chat room tonight. Long Island on July 14th. New York City Metro on July 17th. 
Denver on July 19th, Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, August 17th, and Northern New Jersey on Wednesday, August 24th. All right, all those local local, uh, folks rocking it. It is the unofficial save the date for the 5th Annual OMG Cancer Summit in Las Vegas, people. Pencil in March 30th, March 31st, and April 1st, 2012 for an all-out weekend of insanely awesome programs, events, social networking at the hippest annual event in all of Cancerland. Keep your eyes peeled at omg2012.org over the coming weeks for more details and the official Save the Date to Come. The Stupid Cancer Forums have over 900 members right now. This is your premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Check out stupidcancerforums.com anytime with a one-click sign-up through Facebook. Want to help but don't know how? Join the Stupid Cancer Street Team. It's free, it's easy, win great prizes, and build our grassroots efforts and meet thousands of authentic fans from around the globe. Sign up today at stupidcancerarmy.com. And as always, be sure to register yourself with Immerman Angels, our partner in one-to-one peer matching at immermanangels.org, and check out the calendar for First Descent, the premier young adult outdoor adventure organization at firstdescent.org. And that is your your Stupid Cancer cancer News. Randall Moss, baby. Randall Moss. Randy Moss, it's all me. Randall Moss is the co-author of the recently published book, The Future of Nonprofits, Innovate and Thrive in the Digital Age. He and co-author David Neff have over 20 years' experience working with nonprofits on social media, digital marketing, and innovation transformation projects. We're going to learn all about what he has to say and about nonprofits going forward in the future. I can't wait to hear uh, everything. He sounds like a very, very smart man. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Randall C. Moss. Randall. Good. Hey, hi. How you doing? Doing really well. Thanks so much for having me on. May hi, we, Randall. May we call you Randy? Please do. Please Only my do. mother calls me Rand. Only my mom calls me Randall, and that's when I'm, you know, doing something I shouldn't say. Okay. And it's okay with the whole football thing? I bet you, because you Indeed. must live with that constantly. <laughs> uh, every day. Every, every day. day. You should just say it's news to me. Who's this guy, Randy? Yeah. Football? What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's slouch. So uh, welcome to the show. It's been uh, really great to uh, read all about your work. I was introduced to you guys through, um, uh, we had him on the show. What's his face? From, um, oh, yeah, what's his Uncharitable. face? Uncharitable. Um, yes. Oh, Dan Pilata? Dan Pilata, yeah. yeah. Dan Pilata said you got to check <laughs> these guys out. I, I, I had brain cancer, okay? I don't remember anything anymore. <laughs> this is a shabby excuse. Dan Pilata, who was on the show, yeah. said you got to check these guys out. So I did, and I'm really excited to have you on the show to talk about this. Um, we obviously don't always talk about cancer, but the idea is that we have a huge audience of people that are hungry for knowledge, and we want to make people aware about the world of nonprofits. How do you give? How do you be uh, accountable? How do you have transparency? Where does your money go? And I was uh, really taken by your, your slant on things, and I'd just like you to talk a little bit about how you got involved in the sector. Sure. Well, um I, I want to first say that uh, I co-authored the book with another gentleman named David Neff. Uh, he and I both uh, concurrently worked at the American Cancer Society back from uh, there about 2002 all the way up through 2008, and I think he was there for just a little bit longer, 2009. Um, we had a great partnership and relationship in the sense that I was 
uh, in the area called the Futuring and Innovation Center. We worked as kind of like a venture capital group, and we would find great ideas to solve solutions, or great ideas and solutions to solve problems, and uh, give out grants. And David Neff was a two-time grant recipient, so he's brilliant in and of his own right. And three or four years after leaving the Cancer Society, he and I got back together and have stayed in touch. And I said, hey, remember all of those amazing things, those amazing business concepts and structural ideas that we put into practice and really excel at? I think we should turn this into, into something bigger so everyone can learn from our experience and prosper from it. So that's where the book came out of. That's really the basis of uh, our experience here. He went on to become a, uh, an independent uh, public digital online marketing PR consultant, and I've gone and continued in digital marketing uh, for for-profits. But that's, that's the gist of it. That's where the basis of all of our research and knowledge has come from. So what was David a grant recipient of? He was getting grants from the ACS, but he was where mm-hmm. at the time? So he was at the American Cancer Society's Texas Division. Okay. And later that became the High Plains Division, so serving uh, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska. I see, as part of the ACS. Okay. You got it. Gotcha. You got it. Um, so tell us about and, and see, you've gone on to the for-profit sector, I know, and I, and I, and I mispronounce it. Medwest Vaco? Medwest Vaco? Medwest Vaco, yeah. Medwest Vaco. Okay. Um, and you're head of their whole... Um, kind Shebang. Of, yeah. Well... <laughs> <laughs> Shebang is a, a that's a high tech term. Yeah. That's, that's an industry term. That's, a, that's an industry term. But all sort of like tech stuff for them. Yeah, for the, um I work in the school, you know, if you remember Mead, the Trapper Keeper, Five Star, Mead, Oh my goodness. Full product, full supplies. There you go. So uh, I'm in 7th grade again. It's 1987. <laughs> get your Trapper, get your Cubert Trapper Keeper out. Yep. So I do the um the social media and digital marketing for uh, their school supply and office supply division. Very cool. Yeah. So, all right, so the book that you guys wrote, why don't you walk us through some of your key points in the book? Sure. You know, David and I, what we what we developed and what we experienced and we practiced was a, a new kind of doing business. It's just a new way of approaching and executing business. And I think it's interesting that sometimes you don't know where you don't know that you're in the fountain of youth until you're out of it. And I think it took us a couple of years to not be in that innovative, innovation center environment to really realize how good we had it. Um, what we found was is that structurally, organizationally, from a structure standpoint, if you want to be innovative, it has not a lot to do with new ideas, it has everything to do with how do you go about doing two things really well. Number one is identifying the problems and the challenges that you face, and number two, identifying solutions. And not necessarily solutions to those particular problems and challenges, but just solutions in general. You know, the idea is to build up two banks, problems and solutions. And how you go about that really is an empowering way. I mean, you have to empower your staff the constituents you serve, and go out and out and out from there. And every person that you touch, and even the smallest minutest way, has the ability to bring up an opportunity for growth. The challenge is, hey, you can do this better. And at the same time, they can bring up a solution. Hey, I saw this other group do this thing. It was really neat. And I don't know if you can do this, but I think you should at least pay attention to it. Well, we so were doing it's it's very, very Jack Welch kind of thinking, correct? 
it, it, you know, the, the whole idea, the concept, we, we kind of ripped this off, and I'm not ashamed to say it. When we developed it, uh, uh, the, the vice president in charge was Mike, was Mike Mitchell, uh, genius, brilliant, brilliant man. Um, never met anyone who really saw things the way he did, but he really identified, hey, look at Shell Oil, look at Game Changer, look at what they're doing, look at Jack Welch and GE, and said, bring these ideas, these concepts of empowering the entire organization, serve them up challenges and problems to solve, and then listen to their ideas and find ways where they are applicable within the organization. And the whole purpose of this was to route it through a very formal review process, which was really the heart of this book. How do you review thousands of ideas to make sure you get the ones that are going to drive your mission, raise the money, improve outcomes, create advocacy and games? I mean, that is the whole purpose of this book, is to teach people how do you get this done wherever you are. So, Randy, let me ask you this. Um, I hear you when you say you have to sift through, everybody gets involved and everybody has ideas, and then you have to sift through the ones that you think are the best and actually viable but then the actual implementation. I mean, around here, you know, we have a lot of meetings. We have summits. We have weekend stuff. Everybody's got great ideas. We brainstorm. But sometimes in the actual follow-through, when people have to, you know, get distracted, they've got a lot on their desk. They've got a lot of tasks. There are other things that are more imminent, that are more pressing. A lot of times, I think, in a lot of organizations, stuff can kind of get pushed aside. That's a great idea. But then, you know, three months, six months later, was it followed up on? What's the key right. to the actual implementation, getting it done and getting it done right? Well, here's, here's the key. We, when we put together, when Mike Mitchell put together the Innovation Center, he said this has got to live outside, out of bounds. It has to live outside of the reach and the touch of anyone and everyone. All of our work is independent, completely and totally. So we were unencumbered by rules and by regulations and by politics. And what we did was we had our own pot of money, and we literally said, here's a small, and when I say small, I'm meaning a couple of thousand dollars for you, the person who gave us this brilliant idea, who has the passion to see it succeed. Here's a, a small account. You go out and you prove to us, after, of course, there's been due diligence and there's been a business case developed, you prove that this idea that you have is going to drive the results that you say it will and you have 18 months to actually get it done. And if you don't, you're done. You're cut off. So what we provided was the seed capital, the business support by unencumbering them with rules and committees, and then we provided them guidance and assistance to make their idea come true. And once you have an idea materialized and you can say this has value and here's the proof, it's very hard to say no to it. And I think that's the problem with a lot of organizations. You have ideas, but... You haven't tested them, and you can't say, yes, they drive value. And we're not willing to, to invest in that, and that's the challenge. So essentially they would get the seed money. These were actually employees of ACS, you're saying? Yes, And absolutely. they would get this money, and when you say cut off, it means that they just didn't get any more money or any more time to proceed with their idea. Right. Right. After 18 months, it was, all right, let's, come, let's bring you down to Atlanta and let's get the final report and say, all right, it, it sounds, like a, sounds like a Silicon Valley sandbox concept. It, it, actually, it was uh, developed as a skunk works. We really looked at Lockheed Martin to see how they executed, and we modeled after Lockheed Martin. 
But if you're if you're a, if you're a small organization that doesn't have that mm-hmm. kind of seed money and doesn't have the employees that have the time to take 18 months to develop something, and you're kind of scrambling and you want to get off mm-hmm. the ground, how do you go about that? Well, one of the things I would say is when we had in, when we had staff developing these projects, they still had to continue to do their own job. I mean, it wasn't like, hey, you're now off of you know, uh, development work, now you're concentrating on this. It's no, this is, it was an additive. So it really brought out the extraordinarily passionate ones who really cared about this idea, which is probably part of the reason we had so much success with it. Uh, when you're a small organization, listen, we actually think that small organizations are more, more adept and better at driving innovation. And the reason is, in a small organization, you have to multitask and wear a lot of hats, which means you see across all of the functional areas so when you see a solution arise in one area and a problem arise in a completely different segment of your business, you have the opportunity to see that connectivity and bring those solutions in. So, yeah, we, you may not have the $10,000 or the $5,000 to trial, but you have much better visibility and you're much more nimble and adept at solving problems with solutions from other areas. And large, I mean, we were the Cancer Society, left hand, right hand did not know what the other were doing just because you're 3,000 people large across 50 states. You see what I'm right. saying? Yep, yep. Makes sense. Small I'm with you. Yeah, small and mid-sized, we actually think that when when harnessed and when structured and when disciplined, we'll out-innovate large every day of the week and twice on Tuesday. Well, we hope so. <laughs> when I mean, from go- our perspective. But I mean, going back to, you know, like the American Cancer Society, love them or hate them, they exist as a, a fairly effective institution that comes up under a lot of scrutiny. Is it fair to say that, and not to single them out specifically, but because you brought them up, is this sort of sandbox concept within their organization a fair use of the money they raise given what they promote as their mission? So this is what I will say. Number one, the Innovation Center doesn't exist anymore. It uh, it closed in 2008. Um, did I think it was a fair use? Yes, I did, for the specific reason that the things and the projects and the programs that we were developing were specifically related and tied to driving measurable mission impact. Everything that this organ, everything that our group produced, was directly tied to the mission of the organization. Nothing superfluous, nothing tangential. It all was mission related, and it was all measurable. Okay, so given given that, was it cut because of budget changes, or was it cut because of reprioritization or mission drift? I really don't know. Um, I was not at the organization when it was uh, when it was closed down. I can right. tell you. Right. It was closed down during a large reorganization of the organization. So right. There probably were a number of reasons for it, but none that uh, none that were shared with me. I'm just curious because you know we we are a small organization. We're a sub half million dollar group. We you know ACS has I think their recent 990 said that they have a little over a billion dollars um, in revenue and cap and real estate and, and which is enviable. They've been around over 100 years. Why shouldn't they? So sure. we as smaller nonprofit advocacy groups you know, really look towards the larger organizations for how they chose to grow and how they change, and will they shift with the changing tides? 
Um, are they amenable to you know new standards and accountability? Are they amenable to the transparencies that mm-hmm. you know charities like us are under high scrutiny when we're new to the game? And mm-hmm. you know what role do smaller organizations like ours and not even in the cancer or the healthcare sector have in relation to the standards that these mainstream organizations have sort of set? So I guess it's not really a question, but in the sense of like the future of nonprofits, what does mm-hmm. an organization like ours versus an organization like ACS or Coleman have to do to improve relationships with our constituency and our stakeholders? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. Um, we actually point out a number of trends within the book. That we put up five or six big trends that we think are going to drastically impact NPOs going forward. I think the one big thing that you're asking at is, is a transparency question, and here's the answer. If you are not transparent in this day and age, with the rapid pace that information spreads, you will be very quick to lose large segments of your constituency as soon as someone says boo, and you're not able to respond with dignity and transparency. And I think that there have been organizations that are facing that challenge. That's not how, you know, they respond with slow press releases written on paper. They don't respond with tweets. They don't respond with Facebook posts. They don't respond with direct IMs and messages, and they're not transparent they don't have they don't have a, they have a board of directors that is very removed from the core of the constituency that's that is that is my opinion so to you to you i would say it is very important for you to take note of who your most active and engaged constituents are regardless of their the amount of, of time the amount of dollars that they've donated and make sure that they are brought into the core of your operation, because those are the people that are advocates and that will spread the positive words because they have a lot of, of clout. They have a lot of persona, sometimes even more so than the organization itself. So I think going forward, and, and that's a criticism I have of any organization that really only doles out board seats to people who have donated at a certain level. And, you know, I've consulted a number of, of organizations, and I've looked at their donor rosters, and everyone is 60 years old. And very wealthy. I said, I don't, I don't understand what you're trying to say. This is a statement piece to anyone who would like to be involved that says you can't get involved unless your pocketbook is thick enough and you have enough wrinkles. I mean, that's, that's a very silly – well, it's true. It's a very silly statement. So we really push for people to get very young, engaged, social media savvy, passion, passionate people on their boards because they help to spread transparency and give faith and confidence to those outside of the inner circle of the organization. And we, we have to wrap here, Randy. This is really fascinating. We'll have to have you back on the show, too. But obviously the flip side of that is just people, you know, it's it's tough for nonprofits, and particularly when you hit an economy like this, to sustain mm-hmm. themselves and stay afloat. And, you know, most critical and most pressing is often like, well, we got to keep the lights on, so who can write us a check? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know? this is what I would say. One of the big, One of the trends that we put in is make sure – that the way that you're encouraging constituents to fundraise and to develop funds is very personal to them. You know, I think the age of the one-size-fits-all fundraiser is absolutely out the door. Um, we like to look at Movember, if you guys are familiar with Movember. Yes, we are. It's the a great campaign. It's a, it's a great campaign, but it's great not just because it's cool, but it's great because what it does is it takes its constituents, its fundraisers, and says, Raise the money how you want to raise the money that's relevant to your friends and your network. 
We're not going to write a prescription for you on how to do it, the day, the time, the place, the color that you're going to wear, the direction you're going to walk around the track, the time you're going to have your luminary ceremony. You do it how you want to do it, and we have full faith, confidence, and trust that you are personally invested in the movement or in the organization that you'll do it right and with respect. And that's a big leap of faith that organizations are going to have to take because I don't want to do it the way you want to. I want to do it how it's relevant to me my network. Big yeah. All right. Well, Randy, thank you so much. I'm sorry we're, we're uh, about out of time here, but um, congrats on the book. Yeah, and, good luck uh, with it. What's the website? Thank you very much. What's the uh, website we can tell everybody? Um, the website, thefutureofnonprofits.org. Actually, futurenonprofits.com. On Twitter, we're hashtag thefutureofnpos plural, so hashtag the future NPOs. book is on Amazon if you want to order it. If you like the Kindle, it's there too. And we uh, we genuinely appreciate it. Seriously, read the book, take the ideas, implement them, and ask us questions on our website. We're happy to help people who want to do this and get it done. Well, congratulations Great. to you and David. Good luck with everything, and we'll be in touch. Take care of yourselves. Thanks, this Randy. Fantastic. Thank you right. both and everyone. Randy Moss, okay. everybody. All right, let's get to uh, Dr. Renz here. I'll pick up a uh, a nice little sound cue here. Let's do this one. Oh, wow. Why not? A little usher. little usher. For the good doctor. Usher in the good doctor. All right, Lisa, you're up. Oh, I'm up. Excellent. David Renz is the Beth K. Smith Missouri Chair in Nonprofit Leadership and the Director of the Midwest Center for Nonprofit Leadership, an education, research, and outreach center of the Department of Public Affairs in the Block School of Management at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. That was a very long sentence to list all of his amazing credentials. We're thrilled to have him here. During his career, Dr. Renz also has served as a senior government executive, including five years as executive director of the Metropolitan Council of the Twin Cities and six years as assistant commissioner for the Minnesota Department of Labor and Industry. Dr. Renz received his Ph.D. in organization theory and administration and a Master of Arts in Industrial Relations, both from the University of Minnesota. Please join us in welcoming Dr. David O. Renz. David. Hello. I Welcome. think you could quite possibly be the single most credentialed person we've ever had on the show. <laughs> Definitely uh, up there. Yeah, and, and what does it all add up to, eh? <laughs> Speaking of effectiveness, does it actually make any difference? Did you get a watch at least out of it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just got a lot of great stories to tell because every time I teach leadership, there's another uh, there's another memory from the old days. Okay. I know, it, and he's been listening in for the last uh, half hour or so. We're running um, a little behind. Thank you for hanging no, in. No, and thank you for hanging out. I mean, I, I'm really excited. I mean, we've spoken several times leading up to the show. I'm, I'm a huge fan of your writings and, and of the uh, all the stuff that you you put out there. It's just great content. It's very compelling. It's it's just it's it's it's. I don't know. I, without really kissing your ass, because I really admire you, it's it's quite like a it's biblical in the sense that it's good stuff to follow. I think there are actually tears coming to Matthew's <laughs> eyes right now. No, I'm serious. He, uh, everything oh. he says just makes sense, and it's what like we try to do with this organization every day. That I, it bothers me that so many people don't know this. Stuff. I'll, I'll actually sum it up, and then we'll let you actually talk because yeah. you are our guest, Dr. Renz. I'll sum it up, and Matthew and Matthew knows that I say this lovingly. Um, he's an egomaniac, but he looked me in the eye and said, "I want to be Dr. Renz." Yeah, that's how. That's um, 
So there, if we I'll haven't put wow. if we if we haven't put that over the top for you uh, <laughs> enough, that was uh, it's just anyway. passion and anger at Pat- the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like a lot of the introductions you get where it. it seems like it falls somewhere between a promise and an obituary. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Well, it's, it's a privilege, frankly, for me to be able to work in the field that I do because I get to work with folks like you, uh, folks like Randall Moss and his colleague, and, and uh, people are really you know out there trying to make a difference. There are a few folks who are out there trying to take advantage of folks, but by and large, you know, this is just a phenomenal classic American story here, you know, needs things need to be done in a community and people come together and say let's take care of it we need to deal with it and it's a privilege and an honor for us at the, our center the midwest center for nonprofit leadership to be able to partner we work mostly frankly with the small to medium-sized agencies not quite so much with the really large ones because uh, there's so much creativity and energy there as randall was talking about during his segment so so let's let's break it down here. Um, we're obviously, I mean, we're a small nonprofit. We have a strong constituency of young adults, age fifteen to forty. Um, let's start with the personal. Let's make this all about us. <laughs> let's just, you know, if you look at an organization like ours, and we're also promoting something that's not research in the sense that it's tangible for the folks out there um, to say we do. You know, we're talking about survivorship and. Um, and issues that pertain and and awareness and knowledge and and all of that good stuff that comes with young adults who have cancers. Um, how do you sort of break it down in terms of leadership for a small organization like ours that's still relatively young and and trying to get it a foothold? Well, at the core is really uh, what you described at the very beginning of your question, which is. The need grows and and the definition of success grows out of what compelled you to get going in the first place. Um, The average nonprofit, and the majority of nonprofits in this country actually are are very small. Um, They're much smaller than the American Cancer Society or the really big ones, Um, and, and these are tough times for them. But frankly, an awful lot of what happens in these organizations that makes the difference, it's all about human capital. It's about people coming together around the cause, the purpose. And one of the great things about nonprofits is that they almost always start up really well connected to whatever the cause or mission is. Now, sometimes uh, the folks who are starting one up uh, become blind fairly quickly to any other way of doing things because the the dual-edged sword is that passion that brings you in can sometimes blind you to thinking critically about some of the other things that should be brought to the table as well. That's, That's why yeah. you want to bring other folks into the game. You know, a, a brief mention was made earlier on about boards of directors um, and their impact. That's actually a really huge, um, a really huge source of connectedness because. It, it is easy, if, especially if you're a founder or an early generation member of a nonprofit staff or, or even that first board, it's easy to, to get so caught up. And, of course, the world's never helping you very much at the beginning. You're struggling <laughs> crazy. So as a result, um, you know, you have a certain amount of, of just, uh, you know, put your nose to the grindstone and you don't listen to the critics because if you listened to them, you wouldn't have done it anyway. But the flip side is to get to the point where you bring other partners and collaborators in. And 
you know, Randall said in his segment that uh, you know that part of the critical issue is is being clear about mission, and that really is the start. And you have to go back and and check it out with the folks you exist to serve. I mean, on one of the things. Basis. Sorry, uh, one of the things that you know, at least touched on, which is this nature, and not, again, not to make it all about us, but this is the young adult cancer movement, which has sort of been birthed for about five years now that we sort of you know came on the scene, guns a blazing with. I, I struggle with numerous other nonprofit founders, and it's a very unique ecosystem because they're largely all young adult survivors who started charities in the last five to ten years, perhaps. And going back to the nature of cancer with respect to health care, I'll use that word again. It's, it's, it's an intangible. It's very difficult to quantify meaningful quality of life and personal empowerment and feel-good nature and you know living your best life. It's, it's, the challenge we face is not about our mission. It's not about what we do and how we do it in our programs. The challenge is really the larger cell to the rest of the world in a little in its own little bottle. You know the idea that it's not about research. We're not here to change the science. It's about how do you make the case to the average person whose preconception about this within healthcare is that cancer is still like this death sentence and you should be fine just getting cured and living the rest of your life. With respect to your writings on you know, transparency and oversight, it's very hard to make that case to people when you have nothing to show for it, like a house that you built through Habitat for Humanity. <laughs> well, that's absolutely, that's absolutely true, um, although while it probably doesn't make you feel much better, uh, a good share of the nonprofit world is is more in the boat you're in. It's, it is easier when you've got something tangible um, and, and you know, not to dismiss at all the importance or impact of, um, of food shelves or, or habitat building houses or things like that. But it's easy to make that case, and uh, it's easy for people to see the results. And we're at a time in history, I think it's probably true in our culture in general, but it's certainly true with regard to nonprofits, that people want to know for sure that it's working. They don't want to take chances if they can avoid it, uh, and that means they don't want to take chances with their support, and they really don't want to take chances with their money. That said, um, you know, the little skunk works phrase that Randy was using in his segment is absolutely what most of the nonprofit sector is about. It's about it's about trying new things and blazing new trails. And to some extent, uh, you know, I think, Matthew, what you have to do is is to be clear about what you're trying to do. And then very, very soon, you know, bring either if you're good at it or um, or else bring others to the table who can partner with you, who are good at telling the story, because the critical issue these days, I mean, it's probably always been true, but it's really true now, is you've got to tell a compelling story. But it is from the human side. You know, accountability, transparency, performance measures, those are all important. But what starts the conversation is the compelling connection with human beings and the needs in the community. And I think when, you, when you're able to do some of the things that you're doing with this show where you really have people who, who see the connection, who can talk about how it makes a difference for them, um, you know, you've got to have that level of story even while as you grow and develop, you've got to build some more formal systems that actually measure more specific outcomes. But that outcomes question is a tough one because you, 
as obvious as it might seem, even with a with an obvious result like uh, houses for Habitat for Humanity, most nonprofits are not actually working only for the most obvious of the outcomes they're trying to achieve. It's usually a little more complicated than that. You know, Habitat is not only about putting people in houses. It's about home ownership. It's about helping people understand how to move into communities and live in neighborhoods and things like that. Right. The work you're doing, you know, it's it, you're you're in there adding a, a critical new dimension, additional dimension to what the more conventional organizations, again, you know, to, to borrow your phrase, not to pick on ACS, the uh, Cancer Society, but, you know, they have one niche with what they do. You folks come in and you offer a complementary part uh, in what has to be a very large, complex puzzle. Well, I guess my my question then is, and I'll, I'll use a um, a story that hit the news uh, maybe last week or two weeks ago. A breast cancer charity in Long Island was found out to be um, like uh, they they were misappropriating almost eight million dollars of their funding towards lavish ridiculousness. And very little of that money actually went to their mission. And it took like one donor to realize that. And they've been doing it for years. Yeah. So my question to you is, accountability and transparency may be done for like Charity Navigator or the IRS or your, or your audits. But isn't it true or, or your thoughts on the fact that the, the general public at large of your stakeholders and constituents, they don't think about that. They just naturally assume that you're doing the right thing. Well, there's no question that... Yeah, for better and worse, the uh, the label nonprofit and and, and nonprofit charity uh, carries with it a little bit of um, reassurance that sometimes uh, creates a little bit of blindness. But uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, what we're seeing now is an, invol- an evolving environment where people are starting to ask more questions. I mean, that the fact that that donor did ask that question is critical. Now we're trying to help encourage donors and prospective donors to go in and ask questions, not really elaborate technical questions, but just basic questions of the nonprofits that uh, that they think they may want to support. Because it is, uh, it is critical. There are a few crooks out there, and unfortunately there's enough money in the sector that it's inviting to folks who want to go play games and, and take money, even though that certainly is an incredible, incredibly small segment of, the, of that world. But a critical part of success for nonprofits is staying in touch with that part of the community that they exist to serve. And if you really are engaged in an ongoing way, I mean, I will say, and this may be overly uh, optimistic on my part with regard to your show, but the fact that you have a communications vehicle that occurs every week and this is part of how people connect to you is a good thing. An awful lot of nonprofits are not quite sure how to tell their story in a way that it that it offers the right form and type of information at the time that people want to know about it. Well, we're happy to hear you say that, obviously. Um, uh, <laughs> You're hired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you'll be back next week. <laughs> Dr. Red. Um, let's talk about, you know, there are so many, and then we can stay in the cancer world here and actually just stay within the breast cancer world. I'm a breast cancer survivor myself, but... You look at how many organizations are out there. I mean, in my community where I live, it's just, you know, somebody, uh, and I just spoke at a lovely event actually Friday night for a group of local women. You know, their friends get sick and they put together their own organization. And you think, 
boy, I mean, are we working, you know, you think about how many cross-purposes we may be working at with all these nonprofits, and, you know, Matthew started one, and I came on board here, so we're, in a sense, guilty of it as well, but all these, but you know, we've grown to a certain size, but all these small local groups out there, when they could, say, join Komen or join this, you know, start a local, instead of starting their own foundation, they could start a local chapter, you know, theoretically, of some organization that's thriving that already exists. Is it just human nature that you want to put your own imprint on something or that you feel that you're really doing something, you know, when it's personal and you know somebody. That you can do it better. That you can do it better. What, what, what is it that, that you can either do it better or it makes you feel more empowered that it's got your own name that you came up with on it when theoretically it could be a much easier road if you got set up in an organization that's already existing that has the 501c3 established and that can get you up and running and avoid some of the struggles of launching a small nonprofit. Yeah. Is that a clear question? What? <laughs> Actually, what, what is know, it that people for better just want or worse, to do it, it made themselves? sense to me. <laughs> I'm sorry? I said for better or worse, it made sense to me. Yeah. And, and I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's one of the ironies of the sector. Um, the, the mission, the sense of need, that fuels the passion that leads a founder to start a nonprofit also blinds them to the larger um, sort of scope of issue and set of issues that you've just described. And part of it, you know, there's no question that for some people it's about ego, um, and not necessarily even narcissistic ego in the sense that they've got to have something that's about them, but, but they're just so sure that they've got a unique angle on it. Hmm. And frankly, we encounter you know, we do we do monthly workshops on starting a nonprofit organization in our uh, in our uh, center, and and frankly, about 35 to 40 percent of that workshop is spent trying to talk people out of starting one. Yeah. Because the question is, have you looked around to see if there's somebody else you might collaborate with or partner with, so that you could achieve some of the efficiency and maybe get to a higher level of impact faster than you can if you have to start your own organization up. One right. of the problems is that nobody starts an organiz- a nonprofit thinking, oh, boy, let's start a payroll system. I wonder how many people I can employ. You know, right. <laughs> for better or worse, and it is truly both, it's all about the passion. Nobody start, At least I've never met anybody who started a nonprofit thinking, boy, I hope I get to create a payroll system. Um, right, or I can't wait for my audit. Yeah, right. But then, you know, and and frankly, the naivete that leads people to take these things on, which is great in many respects, but it does blind you to some things. And so, you know, part of what we try to do through our center, and there are centers throughout the country affiliated with universities and many of them that are nonprofits themselves, they, they try to raise awareness. But, of course, people don't listen to um, to the advice about this until after they've gotten right. A little Conventional wisdom just goes right out the window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can imagine how much fun I am at parties when I show up and talk. <laughs> about, uh, you know, oh, um, here comes Renz with effectiveness. <laughs> right, right. So, Dr. Renz, we have a uh, production uh, assistant here named James, and every once in a while we let him speak. And he, <laughs> every once in a while. he has a, he has a question for you. Would you make the case for charity consolidation, and if you would, how would you envision that actually happening, being implemented? Well, that's a great question. Um, almost every metropolitan area in America, I hear people, particularly at foundations, saying, we have too many nonprofits. And in fact, almost every community I go to, 
Uh, people tell me that they're sure that they have more nonprofits per capita than any other metropolitan area in America, and they all say that. Um, it's not, you know, I mean, some areas clearly are much more heavily loaded with nonprofits than others. It's probably not really the number um, that that is the significant issue. Uh, consolidation is a bigger issue, and we actually are seeing more consolidation now because of the economic realities. And the, that's true. The, that that's happening all over the place. Yeah, and the good thing is uh, the folks who are paying attention on a larger sense are actually seeing it coming, and so they're consolidating while they still have enough energy and resources that they can combine together in something that's stronger. If you simply merge two weak nonprofits, what you end up with is a bigger weak nonprofit, and that's not necessarily helpful to anybody. Right. One of the things, though, that's happening that's sort of a variation on the theme you're talking about, and we're seeing it more um, across a lot of communities, and it's probably uh, part of the answer, is that a lot of nonprofits now are moving beyond the old funder's admonition that you should collaborate, and they're actually working together to create what are better integrated networks or systems of coordinated service delivery, where they retain some of their own individual identity, but they're working together collectively to address the larger cluster of problems that add up to the niche they need to serve. For example, HIV/AIDS. You've got uh, you've got organizations that uh, that work with different facets of the illness, the research, and so on. Uh, each brings a little bit of something to the table, often with its slightly different constituency or or group that they serve but collectively they address a community's needs. And when they collaborate, <coughs> excuse me, they often can find, I've got a throat problem. We'll bear with you. Right it here. happens. That's the least when, of what we go through here. I'm going to get the man some Robitussin instead. <laughs> when, uh, when you collaborate, you often get, gee whiz, this is terrible. <coughs> Sorry about that. No worries. He's human. Matthew, Matthew, that, that, that Matthew hasn't coughed this show is astounding. I know. I'm on uppers, <laughs> so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the connections and linkages build community capacity. We'll take, <laughs> you get a sip of water there. <laughs> He's verklempt. He's verklempt. <laughs> he <is, laughs> yes. He is verklempt. Understandable. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry about that. That's don't usually get choked up when I talk about effectiveness. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're impacting him so emotionally. <laughs> yeah. Well, the um, you know to go back to the point that we were <clears throat> talking about, the um, the consolidation that some communities are seeing is positive, but collaboration is a way to get some of the best of both parts of that puzzle. Yeah. Well, let me ask you one more question. We're running out of time, and we could have this call. We definitely want to have you back on the show next season. And please take some is, water. We'd like to yeah, give him some drink, time. To, and yeah. drink, 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 drink. <laughs> um, would you, do you think it's possible, or if it hasn't been done yet, uh, it should? Is there a way that you think quantify the negative impact of how so many of these nonprofit startups that fail, that don't have the foresight you know, to realize what they're getting themselves into, is there like an economic or an impact, negative impact that has on the the legitimate nonprofits that have been around for a couple of years, maybe not the $100 billion groups, but the ones that are truly making a difference that these smaller groups could possibly align with without starting their own? I mean, all the money that goes into the legal fees and the filing fees and the amount of time they're spending just getting you know, a, an email up and running could be used so much more effectively to help another charity. Uh, there was a long-winded question, but the gist of it was, 
Do you think it's possible to quantify the negative impact on the uh, on the mainstream nonprofit world to convince people not to start charities? Uh, honestly, probably not. Um, <clears throat> you can offer estimates, um, and uh, and we can make guesses. But part of what's unique, not to the nonprofit world, but to the organizational world, because it's it's true um, in the nonprofit world, similar to the for-profit world. You often see creativity and new ideas being spurred by the competition among agencies. And while people tend to dislike the idea that nonprofits are competing with each other, a new nonprofit that takes a new spin on a community issue or problem is often in a position to force its more established entities that are in the neighborhood to go back and look again at what they're doing. And sometimes that's where some of the best innovation occurs. And so there is there is some redundancy and duplication that has costs. There's no question about that. But frankly, the sector as a whole is incredibly efficient, partly because an awful lot of what gets done gets done without cash changing hands. It's people who are serving as volunteers, at the least on the board, often in other roles as well. And so, you know, while I wouldn't I wouldn't want to completely minimize the concern that you're expressing. I think it's it's a natural part of the organizational environment that also gives us some of the best of what we need from nonprofits, which is that they're pushing each other to be competitive in a strategic way, not a financial way, but a strategic way in an effort to be responsive. And I think that's that's good for all of us. The fact of the matter is a lot of new nonprofit agencies in our region that are starting up are starting up because existing agencies have not been serving a segment of our community very well. And so as a result, uh, these new agencies are popping up. Now, we do still try to help them connect the dots and link with each other because there are efficiencies that can be achieved by, by working with an entity that's already worked out the infrastructure and you, know, you don't have to buy insurance or worry about the payroll and all of that. Right. But I'd, I'd be very hard-pressed to figure out how you could actually legitimately estimate that because the flat-out duplication costs, in fact, have some of the benefits in the same way that competition in for-profit businesses often create something new in a niche in the in the for-profit sector. Wow. Well, we've we've uh, way run over time with you. We've kept you on uh, plenty long, and appreciate how much time you've given us. Um, and we can't wait to have you uh, back on the show at some point. We hope you'll join us again because there's a lot more to talk about here. And uh, again, you're the only person I've ever heard Matthew say that he wants to actually be. <laughs> So I think I think I think you're stuck with us. No, I, I, well, I, your, I think your collective wisdom is just it's it's enviable. It's fantastic. Well, I appreciate that, I, Matthew. I think you probably um, have your sights set way too narrowly, but, uh, <laughs> but it's nice to hear. And I I appreciate the chance to talk about this. Sorry that my uh, voice is gone here. No, we appreciate it, and good luck to everything that you do. Thank you for making yourself available to us and uh, letting me tap your brain a couple of times. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> All right, Dr. David Wren. Thank everybody. you so much. Yeah, he's uh, he's way cool. He's super cool. Yeah. He just knows like everything about <laughs> about this world, I, which I'm fascinated about. Which again just goes back to my passion and anger, and all these small nonprofits, people thinking they could just start a charity, and they really have no idea what it takes to a start one, but be steward one. Yeah. And be impactful, if that's a word I can use. I think, I, that, I think that is the word that you can okay. use. And Randy Moss, too, this is a great show. No, it was Your really good. Very important ourselves. stuff. Again. Uh, yeah. And, 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 yes, in theory, we did talk about cancer. 
you know, but sure. the whole point is we want to have compelling content for our listeners to well, let's know. Well, let's not forget that we had Angela, and we talked plenty right. of cancer with Angela with, von With Truen. small cell, multisyllabic, something, cervical, <laughs> something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And her sister, she's doing a great thing, too. Yes, good stuff. All right, well, that is our show. Here's our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks, that's tonight's show, our 193rd broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. We'd like to thank our in-studio guests, Mr. James Manning, Charlie Hunter, Angela Van Turin, Randall C. Moss, David O'Renz, our special guests tonight. They were our special guests. It sounded like you were going on with another special guest. Yeah, I got my, confused. My just you w- you there. went on an uptick there. Yeah. All right, everybody, join us next week when our our topic is going to be food politics. This is going to be a good one. Oh, they're all good ones. Come on. Our very special guest is Marion Nessel. You may have seen her all over the place, Dr. Marion Nessel. She's the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at the NYU Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. She's a, another one who's got a lot of titles. She's the author of Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, and she's also the author of Safe Food, Bacteria, Biotechnology, and Bioterrorism. And in our Survivor Spotlight, Miles Biskind, he Best kind. I'm. I'm sorry, Miles. I think that's got it right there. He's a young adult survivor of stage four colon cancer, and he's an author of Blood, Sweat, and Tears: A Humorous Guide to Caring for Cancer Patients. If you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.com, or check out the archives anytime at stupidcancershow.com. Remember, folks, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. Live from the chemo deck on behalf of Lisa Bernhardt, myself, and our whole team here at I2Y, have a great week. Good night, everybody. Good night, folks.